In the January 1977 edition of the Ampro Bulletin appeared one of the strangest tales of alien abduction ever recorded. It occurred at a time when abductions were receiving more and more public exposure. Two years earlier, Travis Walton had been taken by a craft after being hit with a blue beam of flight, while his five co-workers looked on in horror. He returned five days later with one hell of a story to tell. Two years before Travis's experience, two gentlemen, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, were taken on board an egg-shaped object by three beings with lobster claws, elephant feet, wrinkly skin, and carrot-like appendages on their heads. The two men were examined and returned to the pier they had been fishing on. They reported the event to local police, and shortly after, it received national attention. Charles Hickson, along with Dr. J. Allen Hynek, Army Captain Lawrence Coyne, and NASA astronaut James McDivitt would receive a tongue lashing at the hands of Carl Sagan on national television over the reality of aliens. This first story, however, received no national attention, and is far from the norm even for an abduction case. The town of Prospect is small, boasting a population of roughly 5,000 people in central Kentucky. It's bordered by the Ohio River, a hot spot ten years earlier when the Mothman was making trips to the Point Pleasant, Ohio Valley region. This area of Kentucky is known to be a hub for all sorts of strange anomalous phenomenon. The Jefferson County area, which part of Prospect sits in, is known as a UFO hotspot. The hills around Moorhead feel ancient to those who set foot upon them. Those that traverse the Jenny Wiley Trail often feel uneasy, as if they're being watched. Cave Run Lake, just south of Moorhead, is known to be the stopping grounds of Sasquatch. And the Waverly Hills Sanatorium, a building made famous by television shows like Ghost Hunters, gives ghost tours regularly in the Louisville area. Central Kentucky seems to be a place where the anomalous converge and find mutual ground. The roads were relatively clear in the early morning hours of January 27, 1977. Lee Parrish, a 19-year-old truck driver, had been watching TV at a friend's house, Kathy Johnson, until one in the morning. He fed Kathy's dog before departing on the seven-minute drive home. Highway 329 was just a lonely stretch of road when a bright object, the color of the setting sun, came into view, hovering just above the tree line. Lee's gaze could not leave the craft. As it hovered, a growing fear took root within him. The object was approximately 10 feet tall and 40 feet in diameter. The jeepster he was driving slipped from his control, and soon after his radio died out. He continued to stare, transfixed as the silent, blazing object settled directly over him until, moments later, it sped away quickly to the northeast. When he arrived home, his mother asked him what was wrong with his eyes. In the mirror, Lee saw that the whites of his eyes had become incredibly bloodshot, and he was also in a great deal of pain, which lessened over the course of the day. What startled him most was the time. It was now 1.45 a.m. It had taken him 45 minutes to make a seven-minute trip. Lee was fearful of his experience but also curious about the instance of missing time. To help him recall the event, 
He reached out to Lawrence Allison, a hypnotist located nearby. Allison regressed him slowly, first exploring his childhood memories before easing him into the events of January 27th. The trees appeared to be on fire. That was his first thought, until a rectangular-shaped UFO came into view. It was so bright that it caused him great pain. What is it? Lee asked himself, growing more and more fearful. The bright red object moved over to the jeepster and hung in the air without so much as a bob or tilt. It's not moving, Lee repeated in an urgent, terrified tone. The craft changed colors from red to black to white. His vision became impaired and felt like there was something stuck in his eyes. When his vision returned, Lee found himself standing in a white circular room, 20 by 20, bigger on the inside like the TARDIS, with luminous walls. Before him stood three objects. A tall, flat, black, wall-like structure to his left that was approximately 15 to 20 feet tall. It was shaped like an army silhouette target with a rounded, featureless head at the top. Its skin was smooth and rough in places. A long arm that bent at a 45-degree angle was attached to the front of it, and it looked similar to a human arm, but without a hand. It was this machine-like being that Lee feared most. No, no, not the black one, Lee proclaimed during the hypnosis session. The sentient structure lifted its arm to Lee's arm. Its touch produced a cold, burning sensation that also made his body vibrate. On the right-hand side stood a red-colored object that was slightly shorter than Lee and looked to be the rough dimensions of a Coke machine. It had a straight, rod-like appendage on the front of it. Lee sensed apprehension and fear emanating from this machine, as if it was reluctant to do what it was supposed to do. Ultimately, it performed the operation, bringing the appendage up to Lee's shoulder and temple. It produced a slight stinging sensation, but did not make Lee fearful like the black one did. Directly in front of him was a six-foot-tall white object that resembled an archaic computer or adding machine. Lee understood this being to be the ruler of the other two. It only stared at Lee, glowing bright white, while it supervised the other monoliths. When the red sentient machine was done, it moved behind the white one and appeared to be absorbed by it. From those two monoliths came the sound like someone brushing their teeth with a piece of sandpaper. The black object then pulled away from Lee, and the cold feeling they had produced in him was soon replaced with heat. The white machine then moved behind the black one, leaving the towering, black, wall-like monolith the lone object in the room. Lee found himself back in his jeepster with no memory of how he got there. He never communicated with the sentient machines, but somehow knew that the white one was the ruler of the other two, and that the red one was reticent to do what it needed to. He claimed that they performed a checkup, and that they were interested in his chemical makeup. As the hypnotist dug deeper, it was revealed that the jeepster was suspended in the air during his experience, and that he was, quote, transformed into and out of the ship. A day later, the jeep's electrical systems went bad, 
requiring considerable maintenance. Lee received confirmation of his experience when a neighbor reported seeing a UFO hours before the abduction. At 10.30 p.m., Mrs. Louise Belmont was watching television when she heard screams coming from the room of her two sons, Neil and William. Outside their window was a large, white, disc-shaped object with a dome on top. It was twice the size of their house and lit the bedroom up with the brightness of daylight. Even Lee's friend Kathy had seen UFOs in the area in the days leading up to Lee's abduction. This was not Central Kentucky's first abduction case, though. The year previously, on January 6, 1976, Louise Smith, Elaine Thomas, and Mona Stafford were taken from their car and brought on board a disc-shaped object. The three women were celebrating Mona Stafford's 36th birthday at the Redwood Diner. They left the diner in Louise Smith's 1967 Chevy Nova, headed for Houstonville. After pulling onto Highway 78, a bright red object appeared in the sky. It at first looked like a plane on fire, but as it moved in closer, it appeared to be in full control of its descent. Louise then lost control of the Nova. She removed her foot from the gas, while the car maintained speeds in excess of 85 miles per hour. A large metallic disc-shaped object with a dome on top and ring of red lights around the center settled over the driver's side. It moved in close enough so that you could make out a yellow light on the bottom of the craft. Soon, a blue-white light flooded the interior of the car and began to produce a thick-like fog material. All three of them felt a burning sensation so powerful that they couldn't even open their eyes. This was their last memory before arriving home at 11.20 a.m., a full hour and 20 minutes later than it should have taken them. The women confirmed the time differential with a neighbor, Lowell Lee, and they reached out to local police and a nearby Navy recruiting center. The Navy reached out to the local Louisville TV station, relaying the details of the event. That evening it became headline news, and drew the attention of MUFON investigator Jerry Black. It took some convincing from Jerry, but all three women agreed to an interview. To ease their anxiety, Black invited a female investigator, Peggy Schnell, to sit in. She had past experience with cases of this nature. From that first meeting, it was clear that all three were in some form of physical pain, and they were chain-smoking to deal with their experiences. All three complained of excessive thirst, and suffered from unexplained weight loss. We live in fear of what we don't know, Elaine Thomas said. I'm worried about Lou and Mona. I think they're ready for a breakdown. The women relayed as much information about the red-ringed UFO as they could. Black noticed how painful it was for them to recall it. Louise Smith was having difficulties performing her job duties at the Casey County Extension Office. A round, pinkish-gray blotch the size of a half dollar could be seen on the back of her neck when you lifted up her hair. Clocks would fail in her presence. Her Chevy Nova's signal lights quit working after that night, and her parakeet had an adverse reaction to her presence. It was just pure terror. Investigators tested this on other birds, and they all reacted in a similar way. 
Mona Stafford was suffering from some form of eye inflammation. But more than anything, she desperately wanted to figure out what had happened to them. Jerry Black sought out funding for investigators to come work with the women, but was turned down by APRO and J. Allen Hynek's QFOS due to a funding shortage. Leo Sprinkle, however, immediately rushed to Kentucky after hearing about the case. Sprinkle was a member of APRO and worked as a psychiatrist. At first, all three women turned him down, fearing ridicule. It took some convincing from Jim and Coral Lorenzen, but they all finally agreed. The first hypnosis session was conducted on March 6th, 1976. Mona Stafford was the only one put under hypnosis for this session. She recounted the object in the sky, mistaking it at first for a plane about to crash. They ended the session here as she began to cry and became exhausted. In a post-hypnotic state, they did continue to ask her questions, though. They also showed her a series of images of supposed alien beings. She pointed to one and noted the similarities but ultimately remarked how the image of the beings in her mind went in and out like fog. It would be months before another session was conducted. Their physical ailments persisted. They all continued to lose weight and suffered from anxiety. The investigators ran into funding problems again, but they had no choice. They had to get Sprinkle back to Kentucky. To do this, they struck a deal with the National Enquirer, trading exclusive rights to the lady's story for money to fly Sprinkle out. All three ladies would be compensated as well. The only condition was that they had to undergo polygraph testing. The exams were administered by Detective James Young of the Lexington Police Department. All three passed. If you're thinking that this was solely a cash grab, it doesn't seem likely. All involved were concerned for the health and well-being of the ladies, and did what they needed to to get them the care they needed. Louise, Elaine, and Mona would all be put under hypnosis a total of two times each. Through the sessions, it was learned that all three were taken on board the object and subjected to intense physical examinations that were torturous and humiliating at times. They were each examined in different but similar ways. Louise Smith was examined on a table, while Elaine Thomas found herself inside a capsule with a strange, noose-like device around her throat. It caused her pain every time she tried to speak. Mona Stafford was examined in a chair-like device. All three recalled that their bodies were scanned entirely, and some instruments were used to exert pressure on various parts of their body. Elaine remembered a tube with a bullet-like protrusion on the end of it being used to probe her chest. Both Elaine and Mona recalled a warm liquid being applied to their faces and bodies. The beings themselves continued to defy description. They appeared to be shadowy figures which floated or glided. They were approximately four feet tall and had hands that resembled jagged wingtips. All three described eye-like devices that were used in various ways on them during their time on the ship. All three women stuck to their stories over the years, and it appears that they weren't the only ones to witness UFOs that night. Both Casey and Lincoln County saw countless UFOs in their skies. Near the location where the abduction took place, a couple looked on from their living room window as a large, luminous object 
with a ring of red orangish lights flew over the town of Stanford. Two teenage boys reportedly chased a low-flying UFO near the Angel Manufacturing Plant in Stanford. And on the property where the abduction took place, a local farmer witnessed a low-flying UFO shoot a white beam of light toward the ground. It's interesting to note that these two cases share many similarities. They occurred in January in back-to-back years. Both cases involved vehicles that the drivers lost control of upon witnessing red lights in the sky. The familiar missing time element is present, and all of these individuals were abducted only once. The abduction phenomenon would gain prominence in the years that followed, receiving mass exposure in the late 80s and early 90s. Its shape became short, only three and a half to four feet tall. It looked on with black, almond-shaped eyes that glistened like precious stones. Its skin looked sickly pale, as if you could remove layers of it with just one touch. And it all remains a puzzling element in man's short time on this earth. Thank you for listening. Duvid Media.